Hello, welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at scale application development, deployment, and management. Gremlin is the world's first hosted chaos engineering service with a mission to help build a more reliable internet. It turns failure into resilience by enabling engineers to safely experiment on complex systems in order to identify weaknesses before they impact customers and cause revenue loss. Hey everyone, here for another episode of the New Stack Makers and joining me for a conversation about chaos engineering is Colton Andrus, CEO and co-founder at Gremlin. Hi, Colton. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. Ah, oh, you bet. And Eddie was asking me before the call, Eddie's our uh, producer for these shows, and he's like, what is chaos engineering? And it really brought back some memories for me of the Netflix days and uh, the uh, symbian armies and the chaos monkeys. And it was just such a fascinating concept because first of all, chaos and monkeys and, you know, the, you know, the idea of armies attacking inside infrastructure. And it just was like, so set to almost like a movie, you know, it like had kind of that sense of, uh, of theater to it. And people just loved the concept. I remember being at reInvent and seeing the lines to hear someone like Adrian Cockcroft talk about chaos engineering it just went down the hall, you know, and it was almost impossible to get in. And you were right there at the time. And you were, uh, uh, you were previously even to, previous to uh, Netflix, were you at AWS and working on chaos engineering projects? Is that right? Amazon retail? So I was, I was part of Amazon retail. AWS was almost like the small startup when I very first joined at Amazon. That's probably an oversimplification. We were responsible for making sure the retail website was always up and available. So a little bit of historical context, uh, I joined in 2009 and we were brainstorming and talking about this idea of not chaos monkeys, but gremlins. You know, the mythology of the gremlin is the little green goblin in your machine that causes some problem that, you know, causes world war two planes to crash or, you know, there's actually somebody sent me an interesting one about kobolds and the German mythology of kobolds and gremlins. And that's where um, some of the radioactive materials have been named from. And so we were, we were experimenting with this and building internal systems to cause chaos in a controlled way to cause these kind of failures and to build upon what some folks had been doing even as early as 2001, 2005 with game days and manual testing. And this was, uh, we were actually had been working on it for a little while when Chaos Monkey first hit Vogue. And it was obviously an exciting time because it was great to get that external validation. Hey, this idea and this approach that you're taking is being taken in other places and it's being well received. And honestly, that was a big motivation of after my time at Amazon, why I went and joined Netflix. Mm -hmm. And you work there uh, as their chaos engineer on their edge platform team and you built fit a failure injection service. I'm reading from a crunch based bio about you. Tell us about what those early problems were that you were trying to 
understand at Netflix. And then I'd like to just jump forward to where we are today. Yeah. I mean, two sides of the same coin, the same problem at Amazon and Netflix that many companies have. Outages happen. When an outage happens, it's time intensive, it's expensive, it's damaging to your brand. And if you work at a place like Amazon or Netflix, an outage costs hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. And so preventing every outage, preventing every minute of downtime is worth the investment. And so at Amazon, we took more of the infrastructure approach. Let's test what happens when hosts fail. Let's test what happens when we lose network connectivity. Let's test what happens when disks fill up or resources are consumed. At Netflix, we inherited some of that with the Simeon army. And so what we built on and that was with FIT was application level fault injection. You know, imagine I have a service or I have a, a function, I can inject failure or delay into that function to see what happens. And at Netflix, I was part of the API team and we owned the proxy and the API gateway. And so we would call out to the mid-tier services for things like identity, recommendations, recently watched movies. What would happen if one of those failed? Well, truthfully, if I can't get your recently watched movies, I probably shouldn't just crash the application. Mm. We can gracefully degrade. We can give you a cache list or just not show you that and you can continue on. And so that allowed us to go through and be very, very precise about where we wanted to run these experiments. And really the, the nuance came into the business cases. Let's understand what the customer sees and what the right behavior for the system is. And then we can go fix things so that when things go wrong, customers don't see it and they're able to do whatever they came to do. Exactly. Whatever they came to do. And I'd love to jump ahead then to where we are today. Um, we've seen the rise of chaos engineering correlating really to the rise of hyperscale architectures that everyone is using. Distributed architectures are, are different. They're I was thinking, I was actually talking to Eddie earlier today too about back in the media world and back in the 80s and 90s, you had test labs, right? And you would test a computer or you would, you know, even test, uh, you know, motherboards or whatever it might be. Um, but now you um, are looking at uh, data centers and understanding how data centers are going to behave and what they're going to, how the application is going to behave on the data center. So chaos engineering, perhaps you could just give us a quick definition of it today and how you see it. And we can talk a little bit about how it's changing. Certainly. I mean, this is actually one of my favorite topics for debate. Do we do chaos engineering or is it really reliability engineering? Mm -hmm. And is what makes chaos engineering sound fun and exciting also scare the pants off of some old school folks that aren't comfortable with that kind of chaos in their environments? And so most people think chaos engineering is randomly breaking things and seeing what happens. Mm. I think that chaos engineering is thoughtful, planned experiments that teach us about our system. And one of the key concepts that goes with that is this idea of the blast radius. When we run this experiment, who might we impact? Because the goal is to prevent outages, not to cause an outage. So we never want to inadvertently cause customer pain we never want to cause an outage because we were being cavalier in our approach. And so being very thoughtful and prescriptive allows us to mitigate the risk. You know, we start in dev or staging, we start on a single host, we start on a single request. 
if it behaves how it should, we'll scale it up and do more. If it doesn't behave how it should, we found a problem and we can stop and fix it. I think part of what you hit on there is the why. Why are we seeing chaos engineering grow and be more prevalent? And the answer is everyone's moving to the cloud. Everyone is also building distributed systems. Every system today relies on multiple data points or sources outside of your control, whether it's an internal service that another team owns, whether it's a cloud provider, cloud database, or a cloud service, whether it's a third party and a partner. You know, maybe you're in real estate. You need to look at what the current uh, interest rates are. You've got to hit the federal government site. You know, what happens if those external dependencies fail? And that to me has been the biggest forcing function is as we're trying to move quickly, scale quickly, you know, there's many, many things that can go wrong. What is the most effective way to test those? And the truth is we can build these very complex grids of all combinations of things that could happen. And we can try to sub and mock out all these external services that are part of our systems. But that's very time intensive. And it's often easier and more useful to go run real tests on real systems than it is to live entirely in this hypothetical world. So when you think of that, then... What are the architectures that engineers need to have established? And does that mean monitoring? Does it mean environments? Does it mean, you know, what does that mean actually? So, because you can't just start chaos engineering without some preparation for it. This, this is another one of my favorites. People, people will say to me, Colton, we have enough chaos on our environment. We don't need to add any chaos. And to me, that's, these are the people that need it most. If you have a lot of chaos in your environment, you're feeling that pain, then you need some way, some remedy. You need some aspirin for that pain that you're feeling so that you can fix it and ensure that that pain isn't propagating. Now, in terms of what, you know, what are the prerequisites? A hundred percent, I believe that you need good monitoring and alerting. You know, you don't go up and start testing uh, the flight of an aircraft without an instrument control panel. And when you're running experiments, if you can't measure the results, then you're not really running an experiment. You're, you're, <laughs> you're just seeing what happens. And so to me, those are critical. A lot of teams are really struggling to figure out, you know, what is SRE? What does operations look like? As we've moved from a world where there was a QA team, a dev team, and an ops team to a world where those responsibilities are shared and the lines are blurred, folks are, are figuring out how to address these problems. And to me, that's one of the other strong suits of chaos engineering is it provides a good vehicle to test and to practice these things. The analogy I like to draw is that of the fire drill. We've all grown up running fire drills because if a fire breaks out, we all need to respond calmly and safely. And because we've practiced it many times, we all know what to do. But the truth is many of our teams haven't gotten good operational training. And this is this was my life at Amazon and Netflix. They toss you a pager and say, hey, figure it out. And the, the truth is, if you have the opportunity to practice during the day, you can build that muscle memory. You can ask those questions and it gives you a place to, to test and to train and to learn. So this debate about chaos engineering versus SREs then... You know, chaos engineering, isn't it a task that, that an SRE would 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 have as part of their 
tool as part of their uh, tool box? Yeah. I think that chaos engineering is a very useful tool for SREs. It's a good forcing function for them to understand how their systems behave. It's really about understanding risk. And, you know, in face of a lot of things that can go wrong, how do you prioritize those and how do you quantify what could happen? But I think it's important for platform teams that are often blamed if something goes wrong on them. It's really part of the QA process. You know, we're doing unit tests, we're doing integration tests. Well, we need to be doing, you know, realistic failure tests on realistic environments as part of our build and deploy process. And I've seen it a lot with performance teams because you tend to see the the teams that are tasked with, you know, reliability, uh, performance and uh, efficiency grouped together. So who are leading these chaos engineering projects? Do you find, are they SREs? Are they uh, an assortment of people? I mean, I've just given you the the four titles that I see most often us engaging with us at customers. Um, You know, part of it is who, who, who feels the pain, who has the incentive to make the system better and who's interested in, you know, really developing their talents and skills. Um, Because it is the, the forward leaning teams, the teams that, are really, you know, they've moved to the cloud, they're starting to see what this new world feels like, and they recognize that they need a better way. And they're the ones that are hungry looking for how do I do my job better? How do I not get woken up at night? How do I make sure things work the way they're supposed to? Right. A lot of the uh, um, exhaustion that can come if you have a system that is constantly alerting you um, and the the, uh, way that you end up just ignoring the alerts because it's like I heard it compared to, for instance, when an elevator stops working or an escalator stops working, you just get used to seeing the escalators not working at the subway station. So you walk, you go up the stairs, you just don't think anything of it. And that seems that there's an analogy there, I think, to, to monitoring and, you know, and the alerts that you get, it's like you just become immune to it, but then you might miss something that's really important. When, when do, yeah, so I'm, I was going to ask, is that, that must be relevant to what you're talking about, but I'm also curious about when do people start coming, but when do people start reaching out and what are some of the problems that you see that they're having? Yeah. Quick story on the alerting. Um, because I was thinking back to when I first joined Netflix and I was on a team, we had 350 alerts for the API service. I had written none of those alerts. In fact, no one on the team left had written any of those alerts. And so what you do is you inherit all of this noise. And when something goes wrong, you look at it and you have to try to figure out if it's something you can fix or not. One of the things I did was just go through and eliminate as many of those as possible, consolidate them, eliminate them, or turn them into something actionable. And we ended up with like 50 or 60 alerts, but going from 350 to 50 scared the pants out of a lot of people. They were like, well, what if that's an important alert? And I was like, well, let's go find out instead of just hoping it's an important alert. And so that process of really, you know, there's, there's the, there's the mental model people have, there's a, a, bit of resistance. Oh, somebody did it. It must've been for a good reason. And without some empirical way to see what happens, 
people, it's just that unsurety. And so you're going through and you're eliminating that unsurety. Let's go find out what this alert does when this fires and let's go find out if it actually protects us and it's helpful. So sorry, your, your, your story there hit home. So <laughs> no, that's great. And, and I guess it leads to me some, you know, questions about the type of problems that people are you're starting to see like are you are, are the are the problems changing i would imagine so as more people use distributed systems they come in with like alert fatigue but then they start to see other issues that they have i think that's one of the other fun and interesting parts of building a new category and a new practice is people are aware of the idea but they may not understand exactly what they get from investing in that idea and that's where we spend a lot of time helping to understand the problems that people have so we can educate them on how we can help solve them. I oh, think yeah. a, a couple that come to mind, you know, everyone wants to be zone and region redundant. So if something bad happens, you're able to fail over. You mentioned Adrian Cockcroft earlier. One of my favorite quotes of his is around availability theater. We have this big disaster recovery plan that we've never actually executed. And so we think that when things go wrong, we'll just fail regions and we'll be fine. The truth is, and I saw this at Netflix as we got really good at region evacuation, there's a ton of little real world details along that path that can derail you at any point. Oh, you didn't have a good proxy. Oh, this service wasn't scaled to take twice as much traffic. Oh, somebody wrote a bug here that you weren't aware of. And so by actually running that exercise, you uncover the little issues and you fix them so that when something goes wrong, it will actually work the way you want it to. You'll be able to fail over gracefully. But if you don't do it or you don't do it regularly, what might happen is you might go to failover and you might find that you're dealing with two outages instead of one. The alerting and monitoring one is interesting. I don't think that's you know the primary reason people are coming to talk to us. It's really because they had a big outage or they've had a lot of little outages. They feel like they're playing whack-a-mole amongst their microservices. You know, whenever they get one problem fixed, something pops up in another spot. And because it's a distributed system, it propagates. And so you have a problem at a database that hits a cache, that hits a service, that hits an API, and you uncover all of these pain points. Um, I think auto, like learning to operate in the cloud, making sure that auto scaling scales up and scales down is kind of like alerting and monitoring. It's, it's validating that configuration that it protects you. Um, one of the most useful applications that I've seen for chaos engineering is tuning things like thread pools and timeouts. Uh, we always, you know, oftentimes we create our timeouts looking at a happy case graph. You know, everything's going fine. I'll just draw the line above the, the curve and then, you know, everything will work if things go wrong. And what happens is it's not aggressive enough to actually protect the service. The service gets behind it. It's unable to keep up with the load and then it propagates that up the stack to the next service. And so you, you really have to see the system under duress to tune it correctly to protect yourself. And so customers come to you with these different assorted type of problems. Then how do you start working with customers? How do you get them ready to do the, to do the, uh, 
you know, to do the chaos engineering itself? What is it that service that is core to what you offer that you provide customers when they first join you? Yeah, I mean, for for clarity, we've provided a, a platform and a tool that makes it safe and secure to run these types of experiments. But my team is all practitioners that have operated these systems at large companies and at scale. So part of the value that we provide is helping people understand where to begin. And so, you know, that's where, what does your SRE practice look like? How are you measuring reliability? What were your last five outages? And what did those look like? Let's talk through your service. What are you concerned about? What do you think the big risks are? From those discussions, we can really build a plan of what, you know, it's almost like vulnerability assessment in the security world. Once we've gone through and talked with the services and the teams and looked at the historical data, we have a set of things that can go wrong that we can now prioritize and we can decide, you know, which, which are going to be the most important to work on, which are the most risky. From there, what we typically do are run game days. Uh, you know, that's an hour or two with a team where we get in a room, we have a hypothesis of when a system fails, how it will impact the service. We have measurements about, you know, how we expect that to behave. And we're going to go run that experiment. We're going to run the smallest experiment we can. And if it works, great, we're going to scale it up. And at the point that things don't meet our expectations, you know, that's where we're uncovering new information. That's where we're really learning how the system deviates from that normal behavior. And that's, that's the learning that comes from it. And often there's specific details around, oh, here's a, here's a configuration value that didn't work correctly. Here's a timeout that didn't protect us. Here's a proxy that we didn't know existed that is a bottleneck in the way our services communicate. And those are the things that we fix that improve our system. The last piece of that process is really taking that, that and automating it, running it as part of the build and deploy pipeline or as part of our QA process so that we're not regressing to help us get out of whack-a-mole territory so that as we find and uncover and fix things, we're always making forward progress. Tell me more about the experiments themselves. How did you develop the experiments that you offer uh, users? Yeah, that's been a fun journey. Um, you know, one advantage we have compared to the security space is there are only so many things that go wrong on a host or within an application. And so that's essentially the domain of failure. And we can build those core building blocks that replicate those types of failures in those different environments. That was really a lot of our early work is let's give people all the building blocks they need to go recreate any past outage or any scenario that they can envision. We had to do some work on Windows, some work on Kubernetes. There's 100 different you know, variations of container environments. You've got to make sure it works correctly in all of those. From that, we really started to look at the different um, flavors that are uh, the flavors of failure modes that our customers were implementing. And we pulled out a set of scenarios, a set of things that we thought were generally applicable to most teams, you know, region evacuation or tuning auto scaling, uh, your identity service fails, or you can't talk to S3 and you've got a bunch of data in S3, what happens? But what we've seen is there's really even a more specific set of those scenarios that have to do with 
you know, an individual service team or the way a company has implemented something, you know, it might have to do with their custom metrics provider might have to do with the way they've chosen to implement RPC. So we're continuing to try to evolve that library of useful scenarios to be able to share with teams, to share across a company and to share across uh, the community as a whole. Tell me then about your core technology infrastructure behind these experiments. What is it, yeah, you know, what have you built at Gremlin? Yeah, so we have, um, we have an agent. Uh, our first agent was written in Rust. I'm a, I'm a big Rust fan, so I'll just throw that out there. Um, built to be, you know, very performant, to be non-obtrusive when it's not causing failures to have these safety mechanisms built in. If it's ever disconnected from the control plane, it's going to automatically clean up and halt any experiments that are in flight. It's also a place to collect some of the metrics and, and telemetry information to pass it back up to the service. We recently added the Windows client into that mix so that we have parity between Linux and Windows and testing in those environments. Again, we've had to go build uh, Kubernetes and container level support so you can install Gremlin as a container. Gremlin can break other containers in that containerized environment. Um, and so you can go host level, you can go container level. And then as I mentioned a bit about um, what we built at Netflix with Fit, we built something called Alfie at Gremlin that allows you to tie it directly into your application if you want to see a very specific point, how that fails or delays. What is so Alfie? So... I mean, you're talking about it, but why, why do you, why do you hear that name anyway? Alfie stands for application level fault injection Okay. because we didn't have a better name. Um, it but it, that's, that's what it does. It's, you know, again, it's like an annotation or a cut point that you could add into a function that lets you fail or delay it. And really that, you know, just to go back, the difference uh, of that approach is, you know, there's some more overhead. You got to put it into your code. You have to get into, you know, you have to actually modify some of your, your code, not just an agent on the box, but it gives you that much tighter control over where the failure is being injected. So we use that at Netflix to be able to test, you know, I would go test my own Netflix account to see how a failure would behave. And I would have it only impact me. And if that worked correctly, then I would open up to a percent of real traffic. And then if that went well, I'd open up to 10% and then 50 and then 100. So those kind of pieces give us all of the places to inject failure. We have our control plane, which handles a lot of the security concerns and is fully automatable because we're engineers and everything we do, we assume our customers want to do programmatically. And then we get into the web interface, which is really the product. It's the place that we can teach people about how chaos engineering works. We can help understand their environment to recommend for them what they should be experimenting on and help them prioritize it. And really that's the future of where we're going is that's how we can help people to measure the reliability of their services, to assess the potential risks that happen, to even run those experiments for them and to tell them whether their system behaved correctly or to give them the set of things that weren't handled correctly. So they have a short list of things to go fix and improve. When you, let me back up a little bit. You, ha you have a conference coming up uh, on chaos engineering. 
and Adrian Cockroft is speaking there, and there's going to be a lot of different conversations on serverless, for example. One of the questions I have is how has chaos engineering evolved? And it seems like it just needs to continue to evolve with the infrastructure itself as it, you know, gets more advanced. And, and as the roles of individuals change too, because, you know, people are inherently curious. And so you're not just going to have developers who just want to just code. You're going to have developers who are actually curious about the architecture itself. So how do you think about that, you know, th that intersection of infrastructure change and software development and the people who are really curious and the people who are not? Yeah, I mean, this is these are the, the problems I wrestle with every day. You, you actually teed me up well because that's what I'm going to speak about in my talk is, you know, how has chaos engineering really evolved and changed? What have we learned and what's what's going to be different in five years? I think a lot of the why we do this hasn't changed. We know reliability is important. We know distributed systems are tough. We know that the people in the processes play a key role and we have to find a way to make sure everyone communicates and understands how things behave in these complex environments. But I think we've seen some of the lessons of what doesn't work. You know, if you want if you think chaos engineering is a neat project, but it's not something that your company or your culture is willing to embrace, you're probably going to get pretty lackluster results. Um, it's really, it, it's not something that's time intensive for everybody, uh, but it's, if everyone invests a little bit, you get, you get massive returns. And that's been the biggest blocker I've seen to adoption and really embracing the approach is a culture. You, you see some, I'll call them older school cultures where, you know, again, there's a line between ops and, and developers. There's a line between QA and engineers. And so people feel like it's not their problem or their responsibility, or they really want to go do these types of things and leadership, you know, doesn't give the buy-in. Um, one common anti-pattern I see is, hey, features are what make us money. We need to get every single feature out the door we can. Product people sometimes don't understand that if your features don't work or if they fail publicly and gloriously, it's going to lose customer trust. It's going to be, you know, counter to what you're trying to accomplish. And so that's my my one bit of advice for the product and engineering teams is if you're not planning on, you know, five or 10 percent of your time to go make your software higher quality and more reliable, you're going to pay 20 or 30 percent of that time down the road when things fail and you have outages and you have unplanned work. So that's one of my that's one of my learnings is it's better to amortize it up front, but it's kind of like going to the gym. Uh, if if you're not going to the gym right now and you're like, yeah, I really should, but I'm busy and I'm not going to, then that then you're human. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna see uh, you're gonna see those cheeseburgers add up. From cheeseburgers to your conference now, and when you're thinking about the themes that you're talking about, what are some of the themes you're hearing from people? I mean, I I was reading some of the uh, material on your site, and one of the things you talked about are uh, how CIC, CICD pipelines, for example, do have testing built in. You know, they're watched over by DevOps and you know, and SRE teams. I mean, we talked about, you know, who, you know, who you find who's in charge of these chaos engineering projects. We talked about that. 
But what about some of the more, you know, outlying issues that people are seeing as as they adopt more CICD environments, they adopt continuous delivery as a as a way that they really um, build software. It seems like there's all kinds of issues that are new to people that they haven't had to deal with before. I mean, I think one of the common ones is network latency, you know, and, uh, you know, they, it's not about downtime anymore. It's like, how long is that whirly bird twirling on your phone? Yeah, the gray failures can be harder to understand and harder to get right than the hard failures. There's often a kind of a maturity curve we follow there where if you're running some experiments, hard fail the traffic and see what happens. And that's more black or white before you get into the gray. One of the things you hit on there that I've seen with a lot of our large financial customers is they're trying to scale these best practices and raise the bar for reliability and quality across their entire organization. I think that's a bit of a different struggle than if you're trying to get a team to do the right thing. And so the approach that we've seen success with is, you know, we're going to build this into our, into our build and deploy pipeline as a blocker, that if you can't meet this bar of reliability tests, then we won't allow you to deploy into production. And for each company, that bar is different and they have a different set of circumstances. In the financial world, latency is critical, but also ensuring that you don't lose data that um, you're never losing money or a transaction. And so we've seen them come up with these set of scenarios that is really their bar and then go team by team and say, as you part of your cloud transition or as you move on to this new platform or as you're part of this build and deploy process, we want you to enable this set of tests. And if you don't pass these tests, then you don't get to deploy. We want to make sure that the code that goes out is really hardened and ready so perhaps that can lead us kind of into a kind of the last part of our discussion that I'd like to discuss are some of the success stories then. You know, what are what does a success story look like for you? Yeah, there's a couple that come to mind. Um, one of our customers was working on region evacuation. They had 40 teams that used Gremlin to go do testing. Hey, let's see what happens. Let's isolate our service by ourselves first. Let's uncover the rough edges and let's fix them. And it was almost serendipitous, but the other half of their teams did not. And they planned this, they worked for six to eight weeks, and then they went to go run the region evacuation. And what happened was the 40 teams that had put in the work and prepared, everything went as expected and went smoothly. And the 40 teams that didn't prepare encountered all sorts of little issues and problems. And we tried to drill in and how many of those 40? And the answer was too many, too many of those 40. So I think, you know, we spoke about that, that availability theater and region evacuation, but that's one I've seen personally at, at Netflix and with many of our customers provide a lot of value, a lot of peace of mind. And then when something bad happens, they shift traffic. It works as expected. Their customers never know. It's the outage that never happened. Um, you know, a lot of it is really uncovering the details of the system. You know, I have a dependency that I rely on. The, the proxy one is one that comes to mind. Uh, I had a team that was doing some testing. They added some latency and things went, went off the rails much quicker than they expected. And the reason for that was a proxy that they were unaware of that sat in between them and the service they were communicating to. And that proxy had a limit that once it was hit, 
just wasn't tuned correctly. But the engineers that operated that service had no knowledge of that proxy before they ran that experiment. And so that typifies what I would say is we have these mental models of how our systems look and they're theoretical. You know, we can whiteboard it. We did this, I've done this a million times as an engineer. Here's what my service is. Here's the dependencies. But the truth is much messier with many more details and nuance to it. And when we oversimplify our systems, we oversimplify our risks and we oversimplify our exposure. And by getting in and running actual experiments, you know, again, let's find out where the system tips over. Oh, the system tipped over at, you know, we added 100 milliseconds latency and our response time went to two seconds. That doesn't seem to line up. Why did that happen? Oh, we just found out that we've got a network call in a tight loop. And every 100 milliseconds we add gets multiplied by 10 or 20. Um, that's that latency amplification I've seen show up many, many times. Uh, where just a little bit of latency to the right dependency goes exponential for that service and everything falls over. I'd say the third pattern, just to give you the rule of three, is uh, we rely on a cache to be able to service everything. When that cache goes down, the service behind it isn't scaled to handle that level of traffic. So that service falls over and maybe propagates to the database. And that's, that's a pattern to scale to be able to leverage caching effectively. Um, but what happens when that goes wrong, I've seen cause a lot, of, a lot of pain as people have to wait for a cache to rebuild or they have to bring up new hosts that take a long time to you know, rebuild the, that cache data. So region evacuation, latency amplification, and then just the real world is much uglier than the world that we hold in our heads mm -hmm. are, are probably the three that come to mind. It's interesting because we hear so much about dependency management, right? And, and how important it is to be able to just not think of that. It's just a few lines of code, but it's actually, there's a lot of dependencies that are really impacting your own you know systems and network latency and how you're thinking about the software that you know that you've deployed and so maybe in conclusion how do you keep how do you keep on top of everything because this world is moving so quickly and you know now it's you know api gateways were really a new concept a few years ago and now we're talking about service mesh environments the hardware is getting much closer to the software itself. Yeah, my my opinion there is that, look, I started doing this because I'm a lazy engineer, because mm -hmm. I want to be efficient with my time, because I don't want to get woken up at night. And that that's, I think, again, back to my point about amortizing and investing small amounts up front actually saves you large amounts of time. So in the QA world, there's a hundred different variables we have to test and that's whatever, you know, a hundred to the power of whatever that things that can go wrong. But in reality, there's only a few failure scenarios that are, we're really scared of. So let's just go run those and see what happens. And that'll give us a much cleaner view of the world. So being, in, being able to go in and do something on a monthly basis or a weekly basis is actually super valuable in this place. Some companies get away with doing these types of things quarterly. 
I think that's the the saving grace is you can invest a small amount of time to save yourself much more time by thinking through what could go wrong and even running the top two or three scenarios. And yeah, if you want to get to five or six nines, you have to get way off into the weeds and you have to cover, you know, things that are more seldom and less likely. But if you're in the two to three nines world where most companies are, there's a lot of low hanging fruit that a couple of hours of time will save you. You know, what's the adage? Uh, Hours of planning will save you from weeks of coding. Well, hours of chaos engineering will save you from weeks of outages and firefighting. Mm, That's a great way to end it. Hours of chaos engineering will save you hour or save you what? To say that again, hours of chaos engineering will save you weeks of outages and firefighting. Mm. Perfect. Well, Colton, thank you so much for taking some time to talk today. Your conference is coming right up. I think it's right on the forefront of topics that people are really interested in hearing. It's a lot about the day two challenges that uh, we're seeing emerge now. It's not just getting it all up and running, but now it's understanding that the plumbing is there, but anything can happen with the plumbing once you get it set up. And you better be ready. You better be ready. It's all about being ready. It's all about not being surprised. Right. So you can hang out. So you can, so, so you can hang out with your kids and get some sleep at night. Right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Look, if, if I can do the same job in half the time with the same quality, that sounds like a win to me. Again, I got a bunch of little kids, so uh, not getting woken up in the middle of the night from work was always a priority for me. Well, Colton, thanks for your time. Look forward to talking again soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Gremlin is the world's first hosted chaos engineering service with a mission to help build a more reliable internet. It turns failure into resilience by enabling engineers to safely experiment on complex systems in order to identify weaknesses before they impact customers and cause revenue loss. Listen to more episodes of the Newstack Makers at thenewstack.io slash podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes, like us on YouTube, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and see you next time.